Welcome, episode 12. Listeners, hello. Greetings, internet. Intern, hello. Inter, the, the interwebs. All right, so some news broke that we thought would be interesting to talk about. One, because it's a company that we like and have talked about before. Two, because uh, there are some wide-reaching implications on this report, if it's true, from the Financial Times that uh, ARM is looking to change its business model from, call it a traditional royalty structure, to a percentage of ASP of products in which they sell. So we, we've talked about you know ARM as a licensing company. We did not talk about their business model, but we did outline they have uh, two different types of approaches. They have architecture licensees who pay an upfront fee and then don't pay anything arm to arm after that. That includes your Apples, your NVIDIA, um, Broadcom, actually, which we'll talk about, Marvell, uh, a handful of others, some that are not public, but my suspicion is Google is one of those, uh, and Microsoft is one of those, but no one has ever confirmed that. That's just Ben's, uh, Ben's speculation. Uh, but then you've got a host of companies who are just standard licensees, like Huawei, and um, and MediaTek and a few other companies that and probably a growing list of automotive companies, I would imagine, um, maybe some of the, the the big tech firms as well who have just standard licenses. And it is to those standard licenses that it sounds like the business model is slightly changing for. And I'm of two minds of this change, um, but I'll let you sort of go off first with a with a preamble on kind of your take. I know you tweeted about it um, and uh, mentioned a little bit of the implications. So I'll let you start the first reactions to, if, if this is true, uh, ARM's business model change. My, my first reaction is, how do I buy stock in Risk Five? You can't. Right, that was my it. first, <laughs> which, you, which you can't, but like every every Risk Five product out there just looks better, better and better by the day. Yeah. Um, it's just cleaner and simpler. Um, but but I have a lot of other reactions too, as I'm sure we're going to get into. In fact, the, the, the risk one, um, the risk one I think is an, is an interesting one because, I mean, just as of late, I've had five, six conversations with, uh, call it medium, medium stage, not yet late stage, but medium stage risk five companies who over the past eight to 10 months have seen a tremendous amount of momentum in start to take off. I'm not sure. I, I don't think that's everything related to, to arm, but as you know, there is no real risk five company shipping in volume yet. Um, there's a handful shipping. There's a lot not shipping yet working on product, but the ones I've talked to have seen pretty, pretty interesting acceleration or of demand in their, in their pipeline. Um, so I think some of the theories we've talked about risk five are leading in that direction, but there's really not a ton of, a ton of companies out there. I, so, yeah, it, it's it's a bunch of sides to it, right? So there's there are companies that just do risk five for, as startups, and yeah, there there's a, there's a handful I know in the in the U.S. Um, some of them with very big ambitions, GPUs, CPUs, that kind of stuff, and then there are you know a thousand of them in China, mostly doing industrial embedded stuff. Um, but there's also another important component to that is large corporates doing risk five. And 
you know, I was traveling last week. I was in Southern California. I went and talked to a bunch of people and just the amount of activity and interest in risk five, it, it's, it's just huge. Big, the big corporate chip companies all have advanced stages of risk, risk five cores in the, in their chips. And, you know, maybe it'll be sitting next to an arm, an arm core. Um, but it's still like just an immense amount of momentum uh, across the ecosystem around risk five now. Yep. So, so let's, let's get into this. We, um, so, so there's two things. This doesn't surprise me given that you and I, and, and a lot of other conversations, um, have been, been looking at how does arm create a, a bigger valuation for their business, uh, when they IPO they're, they're just a bit over a, a $2 billion a year, um, company right now. I remember the days when I used to track them. I'm sure this was your days at at uh, Deutsche Bank when they were six, seven hundred million a year in revenue and licenses. So, I mean, decent growth, but we're talking about 10, 12 years um, from then. And and it it makes sense, I think, to move to this model because you know IP companies have a range of different things. Several IP companies do do this as a part of a percentage. So Qualcomm, Qualcomm's licensing business does this, but but they have a cap of anywhere from two point five to three point two five percent, depending on the type of a of a of a cell phone. That's just for for cell phones. I'm sure they have caps for IoT, which is smaller. Uh, PC, automotive. There, there's going to be a cap to to their percentage of the the sales price. Um, so it, it makes sense, you know, that they follow kind of a traditional model that people into play. What we don't know, however, is if ARM has a cap or 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 what that looks like. We don't know what percentage of the selling price they're trying to get from. We just know they're moving from a very small percent, call it one-ish or slower than one percent, to something higher than that. Yeah, there's a lot we don't know. Um we so we're recording this on March 24th, and we're you know we're talking about a story that came out in the Financial Times yesterday, March 23rd, written by Anna Gross, and reputable firm, reputable reporter. Uh, she did a lot of great reporting just to get this far in the story, right? So we don't know much beyond what's in that, except you and I both know something something's been in the works. Like we've been hearing a lot of rumblings about this, and we don't know how broad it's going to be. We don't know a lot of the details like cap and the detailed royalty rates, it'll take years for that stuff to come out. Um, but there, there are a lot of uh, problems with implementation uh, that are going to, you know, be, be really important to how this, how this works out over the long run. Yeah. There, there's, there's some implications that I, I've thought about that kind of intrigue me. Um, you know, one, like, let's just say that this, that this has meaningful, revenue impact to someone like MediaTek, I would imagine, I mean, again, it's not like MediaTek is up to license, up, up to, re, to renew right now. So it's not like ARM can come to somebody who says, oh, hey, you have a license. It's at this rate through 2030, but we're going to ask you to change now. Like this is for new, for new licensing or for when those contracts are up for, for, for renegotiation, which varies by timeline. So, so it's not like we'll be able to see any impact to, to MediaTek or others, but there's to, to both Marvell and Broadcom uh, came to mind for me because both those companies are architecture licensees who, for better or worse, 
have moved away from custom cores and custom ARM implementations to much more off-the-shelf IP. And and in my mind, I just sort of wonder, you know, are, do those companies kind of take a look at their their roadmaps and say, well, is it worth it perhaps for us to start utilizing our architecture license and um, and starting to invest more in custom cores because that might save them money in the long haul, right? Despite the engineering costs. But I just, you know, point being, I wonder if they pivot back to custom cores just because they either don't like the fees that might get hit to them or they don't like the business model change or something. And so it's just thinking through the ramifications of, of where this might go. That, that was one of them. You know, what, could it drive non, could it drive architecture licensees who weren't using custom cores back to custom cores was a broad question. Right. So, you know, file that under a whole list of unintended consequences of all this. Right. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. A lot of a lot of people are going to look at this and say, oh, I'm not going to pay that new rate. I'll just stick with my architectural license if they can still access it. Uh, I, you know, obviously, my my guess is a lot of them are going to look at this and say, oh, risk five time for risk five. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I guess if if we take a step back. I, I've been saying this for a long time is that arms. Underlying pricing model is is upside down. Right, right. And right, because what, what's happened over the years is their largest licensees have ended up through just, you know, years and years of negotiation have ended up with the lowest ro- effective royalty rates. Right. Which has penalized all the startups who are coming into the field. And there's obviously been a, a ton of new startup, you know, semiconductor startups in the last five, 10 years, both in China and here. And they go to ARM and the, you know, the upfront terms for ARM are very, very difficult for any new company to swallow. Right? You have big multi-million dollar upfront payment, and then you have royalty rates that are likely higher than your massive, massive competitor. And that's, right. I think, uh, I understand how ARM ended up there, but I also think it is long-term created a big problem for them, which is now taking the shape of risk five. And, and I, I have to think that moving to this model and the extra layer of ARM is going to, you know, license, you know, want to approve who the customers are, is a, a, a big layer of friction in this whole process, right? Because from, from the article, it makes it sound like ARM doesn't actually want to sign licenses with the chip designer, it wants to sign licenses with the end customer. The end customer. Yeah. And we're, we're, we're going to talk about that in a, in a second, like how that's going to play out. But if, if I'm a startup, I, you know, I, I'm, I, have to, I have to struggle really, really hard just to get my first customer signed up. And, yeah. and now on top of that, I have to go through some ARM paperwork to get, you know, I have to have my customer sign up some ARM paperwork. It's, it's a, so in, in, in the realm of unintended consequences, does this just even further penalize right. new, new startups, new companies? Yeah. Yeah, and I think an, an example of that point, right, for customers, because this is something I've, I've thought about, um, you know, so imagine that uh, a lot of automotive companies are going to use ARM, ARM products in their, in their cars, do today, and arguably what might increasingly more so. You, if you buy that chip from, you know, NVIDIA, whoever, right, Qualcomm, somebody who supplies those things, I think the question that, that this brings up is, if, is, is the 
rate covered with what you're purchasing, which is usually the way that Qualcomm would spin it. Buy a, buy a product from us, you're you're covered in the license fee. But is is ARM asking you know Ford and GM to pay on top of that beyond buying the product from a Qualcomm or an Nvidia or somebody else, right? Um, we don't know, but that's I think what people have been insinuating is that they're asking the end customer who's purchasing said chip, like you said. And so the end customer in this case is a car OEM, for example. Right. And I think this also highlights an important difference between what ARM licenses and how Qualcomm licenses, because Qualcomm is, is essentially licensing pure IP patents, right? while ARM is selling a product and changing its license, trying to change its license terms. And I think that's important because one of the benefits of having a Qualcomm license in the past was that gave you a certain level of protection right. from others others who wanted to assert IP against you, right? Your tiny handset company, some yeah. you know IP lawyer comes and says, "Hey, you're infringing on this patent I bought in, our, in a you know in a men's room in our Oklahoma 20 years ago," uh, right? And and the the handset company can say, "No, no, that's 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 Qualcomm's IP. I'm covered by that." And it's in Qualcomm's interest to scare away those people because they don't want their patents threatened, right? So you have a you 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 know you have a you have a roof, you have a backing. Yep. In in Arm's case, like, do, does is that gonna pertain? Like, it, it's not you're not really getting IP the same kind of IP. You're getting a product, and uh, right. The, so you're just gonna value it on just the product, the the product itself, and you're going to make rational economic calculations around that, yeah. which may lead to some, you know, other conclusions. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think the, we've talked about this a lot, the unintended consequences of this is something I keep thinking about, but, but that being said, you know, arm wants to IPO. They want to grow the business. I just think it's fundamentally very difficult with their current business model. So it's kind of like, what do you do? Like, what are your options here? Like it's, this is one of the ways that they've either concluded or are pursuing, perhaps there's others, but, you know, within the vein of they have to do something, right? They're just not going to grow to a, whatever valuations being speculated about them right now, let's just say in the 30 to $50 billion range. But, but even before that, right, when they wanted to sell to NVIDIA, they were selling at North of 40, which still to me was a, a remarkable number given that they're a $2 billion a year company annually in terms of upside, I think ARM has upside, revenue growth upside in terms of these areas. I just, I think the business model is a really interesting question because the way it is today is not going to lead to that kind of growth or that valuation. It has to come from some change. And that's why I think there's, there's angst here to do something because it's, it's somewhat necessary. So let me address that specific. And then I have a second part I want to come back to, which the specifics of this, I, I'm curious why didn't ARM just raise its prices, right? It said, you know, today it's a penny a core, tomorrow it's two cents a core. Mm -hmm. I, I, like, I, I think, you know, they, they are, um, uh, you know, effectively, well, in, in some senses they were a monopoly, just raise their prices, right? There's that, that, it seems to me that would have been much simpler, much cleaner approach rather than reworking the whole engine, just sort of raise prices, um, I think there is there's scope to do that, and people would grumble and complain about it, but it would have been, right. you know, simpler at some level. I'm sure for the salesperson trying to get that con contract closed, it won't be simpler, but for right. broad perspective, it's simpler. So 
I, I wonder why not just do that. Second, I think you're getting to the root of the issue, which is the IPO is coming. And certainly the FT article makes it sound a lot like the, tr the prime motivator behind this move is SoftBank and Masasan, right? Who really, you know, they have a lot of incentives to gin up the value, the company's prospects to get a bigger, better, better valuation, you know, which is also a better exit for them. And that, that seems really, really uh, scary. That seems like it's going to, like, I mean, I, I think we talked about this. I, I wrote a book about IPOs, right? And my main conclusion in the IPO was be very careful when you IPO because all the people surrounding you as a CEO in your decision-making ahead of the IPO have an incentive to jack up the valuation at the IPO because they're all leaving. And that comes at the cost of all the people who are coming in the door. And you as CEO are really, really going to be dependent on those in newcomers, you know, for your professional happiness in the next few years. And, but all your incentives and all the people around you prior to the IPO are, have very, very different set of incentives. And yep. it feels like that is exactly what's playing out here. Um, only it's not one VC on the board trying to, you know, hey, raise your, raise your out year revenue forecast a little bit. Like this is like, right. let's, let's redo the whole business to make it seem spectacular. Right. It's, 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 a, it's a lot like, you know, trying to fix a car that's running down the freeway at 80 miles an hour yeah. and replace the engine. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you in terms of the, the question on pricing. I mean, I just keep coming back to it's, it, it's, it's alluring to say I'm going to get X percent of a $15,000 car or a $30,000 car. And, and, and in my mind, like the thing that I keep coming back to is, I mean, I, I know at least the vague timelines of a lot of their main licensees today, and, and none of them are up for renegotiation anytime soon. So who, who like in the short term of the next couple of years, can they get additive value from? It's not going to be people who pay them contracts today. It's got to be somebody else. And that's why I think this is part of that. We want to negotiate with Ford, with GM, with uh, Microsoft or whoever at a hyperscaler and have those Facebook, right? I mean, whatever, and, and try to get some more immediate value out of them if they can, because where else are they going to get it in the next few years? Their growth is has been relatively modest on an annual basis, which is not going to do great for investors at an IPO. Okay, but you could also deliver new products with features that people need and uh convince them to pay more for it, which I think you could also call to sort of, you know, run your business, run your business product, well. Yeah. Product strategy. Yeah. Just, uh, I, I think that that's going to lead to a lot less, a lot less heartbreak. Yeah. You're right. I, I'll, I'll tell you my, my, my big, my biggest, my biggest concern about, about this move. And I admit, you know, I don't understand all, all of the details of it, but changing your model like this is very, very hard to implement from practical terms. Yes. Right. And I, and I know everyone's saying, Oh, this is what Qualcomm does. Let's just use Qualcomm's model. Yeah. Except it's ignoring 20 years of some of the most bitter litigation in all of tech. That That's all it took for Qualcomm to get that model. 
right? Yeah. Qualcomm didn't just wasn't just handed and said, "Oh, let's do it this way." They had to fight brutally to get there. And and now ARM wants to put that in place while getting ready to IPO and right. expect it to go right. well. Right. I just I I guess I just don't understand like how does that how what's the sales mechanism for that? What's the go to market motion for that? Yep. Right. You have you have an ARM salesperson who now has to go call on automotive companies and handset companies and electronics companies, some of whom, you know, may have heard of ARM before, some of whom have may not. I, I wrote about this when the rumor first popped up when the Qualcomm uh, countersuit came out, right? What is that conversation? You're a purchasing guy at some industrial company and someone from ARM comes up and says, hey, you need to sign a license with us if you want to buy your chips. So now that purchasing person has to go to his CFO and hey, CFO, Miss CFO, we got this this arm people coming up, showing up. They want us to sign a license. Like, it's just that's that's hard enough to do, right? To have that conversation, and and then just sort of thinking through, like any large industrial company is gonna. It takes you know, it takes nine months to get onboarded to their payable system, plus you know, however long to negotiate the contract, years, right? So, yep. doing doing this ahead of the IPO to gin up the IPO valuation is, is counterproductive at best. Um, if, you know, it's going to be very, very hard just in practical terms. Like how do you actually put that in place? Yeah. Right. I, and I know arm arm talks to the car companies and the server manufacturers, but like having technology conversations with them is very, very different from showing up with, you know, a salesperson and, an, and a licensing attorney. Yeah. Yeah, and a, you know, yeah. a pile of a pile of papers to sign. Yeah, no, exactly. And and I think the most important you know point you made is one the distinction in Qualcomm's patents because again, you're not like just getting you're buying a product, but you're getting a license to SEPs, standard central patents, etc. For a whole range of things, like that's important. Uh, you're not getting anything like that right from 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 ARM in terms of of the overall uh, IP. But I, I I agree with you in terms of you know, V10 comes out or next version of, of data center H, you know, pr product charge a little bit more for those, right? Make sure that those are well valued. It, it is a right approach, but it, maybe they'll change. But I, I, I am worried that if the, if the fundamentals of said IPO are too inflated and it, uh, it hits some issues in the market, that's going to look pretty bad in uh, a lot of different aspects. Yes. I, I actually think you just hit on the key thing is when Qualcomm did it, they always could always revert to say, look, it's in the standard. You, you don't want to sign our license, but this is our patent and it's in the standards. You have to do it. Right. And and they always had that sort of foundation, you know, the, the backing of the of the standards, the existence of the standards yeah. set aside the complexities of who wrote the standard. But just that standard was always there as like the final backstop who's going to backstop arm right yeah. 10 years ago when they really when they when they really were a monopoly maybe but they're not that today right push too hard and you know risk 5 just looks better and better yeah and just just so you know how the the IPO plays out in that scenario you just painted like that's the reason I wrote the book is because I had to when I was an analyst I took so many companies public and they all made the same mistake where their VCs and their board said, hey, jack up, jack up your out-year model to gin up the valuation. 
And they forget the fact that, you know, analysts would just draw a straight line between today's number and tomorrow's number. And yeah. 90 days after the IPO, you report your first number and you're already below that trend line. Yep. And the valuation sinks. And you do that second quarter, it's that's you're done. People forget about you. And so it's it's a really it's a really risky game to uh, to set up expectations too high. E- even if you say it's the out year, people will still do that math, and it you what you're really losing is credibility with the street. Excellent. And as a new a new company, right? As a new company, even you know even Arm, who's been around for a long time and people know a bit better, it's still a new management team. Like this this yep. CEO hasn't been in front of the street before. He yep. he's going to have to convince investors that uh you know he's reliable and he's credible and if you miss your number because you're you're have all these grand notions of your value of your your model long term you you get relegated to sort of the ignore pile very very quickly yeah, yeah. that, that uh, is I, I think that's one of my my biggest concerns <laughs> that it's yeah. it's executive hot seat for many quarters in a row when the numbers just don't pan out the same way that that they expected per ipo and investors are brutal, you know, I mean, it's a tough, tough spot to be. So, um, that, you know, that, that to me is, is an issue. The the last point I'll make on this too, is like, I look at, I, I look at the market from the viewpoint of who is best positioned to compete and, and, and compete via true competitive advantage and differentiation. And I do keep, coming back to it's those people who have some control of the architecture and I'll just I'll just use this as in, in the example in in servers right so there's two companies who I think uh, who I think are not a vertical company like Amazon making a chip who have the best who will be best positioned to sell a third party server chip and that's Ampere computing and Nvidia and what those two companies have in common is they have a custom architecture because they've created something very specific to solve a specific problem. And so I keep, I feel this tension between, between arms saying, well, like, look, we would rather have more standard licensees because we're going to make more money from them. But unfortunately, standard licensees are really not that differentiated in the market. It, it creates a very vanilla competitive environment compared to what you see where every architecture licensee, for the most part, has a fundamental set of differentiation built in. So the point I'm making is I view a lot of this upside for ARM as the opportunity for architectural licensees, but I just don't feel like that's how they see it. And so I feel there's this friction between where they could really see successes in the market. And I just don't feel like it's going to come from these standard, um, these just, you know, vendor, vendor chips or vendor silicon, if you will, who's just getting off the shelf ARM IP. I think that's I think that's very that's a very good analysis and and I'll tell you the the, the ecosystem of licensees is always um, not always but usually certainly over the past few years has been greatly underwhelmed by the support that ARM gives to the ecosystem. Yes, and I think this falls into that exact category where where everybody just wants more from arm and arm is not giving that they're giving this other you know models and they're sort of I, I think this will be seen as prioritizing the company and the company's very near-term future at the expense of the ecosystem and yes. i you know i, I i'm not going to accuse them of doing that but i i certainly 
think that there are a lot of people in the ecosystem who will absolutely view it that way. Yeah. With all the ramifications that has on their sort of future planning of products. Yep. Um, all right. Before we move on, just for timeline wise, so our listeners know, the, the good news is sometime in this calendar year, we'll have an S1 to analyze and we'll have a IPO. So it will, we will be able to talk about these things with a lot more clarity from both that document and, and how they perform. But I wanted to shift to um, the opportunity for uh, IP businesses, and I'm not just going to say pure IP businesses, but businesses also who have a lot of IP. I think this this is an interesting conversation. You've got companies who sell products, but also license IP. Um, you know, Rambus does this. I know Infineon does this. Obviously, there's companies that just sell licenses, um, and and but it's a, it's a smaller batch. So we were talking a little bit about this before. Um, what's the potential opportunity here to kind of reinvigorate uh, IP businesses and companies with IP businesses that might not have been the most sexy or attractive part of their, their P&L? So I think, I, I think IP is going to become much more important. It's already plays a, a huge role, bigger than most people sort of realize. But I think it's going to become a, a, a more important, more broadly uh, we, we, you know, we talk a lot about the death of general compute and the move to heterogeneous compute and sort of custom, semi-custom silicon. Th- that's going to favor people who have differentiated IP, right? And and so, yep. um, you know, there 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 are companies out there that can license interesting things. You know, not necessarily a, a CPU core. Like we don't need another competitor for ARM, but there are right. other new areas where there is a lot of appeal. So, you know, AI is the obvious one. Um, but lots of other adjacencies where there's a lot of interesting things happening around IP and, you, you know, you talk about like chiplets, that's another sort of hot topic. Like chiplets lend themselves really well to IP or SOCs, like being able to compose, we're, we're going to see a lot more, you know, composing of ASICs and SOCs, special purpose chips, and people are going to be able to mix and match. Or like chiplet is the is in physical manifestation of it, but, or just, you know, IP, you incorporate some of IP into your chip to create differentiation that looks a lot more appealing in a, in a custom semi-custom world. And, and so, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of IP just in the sense of, you know, the kind of IP that we're talking about with arm licensing, something that other people that's re- repeatable that other people want to use. Um, and, and that's going to become important. I also think, you know, we're probably going to head back into another phase of patents and that kind of IP becoming very important. We're certainly seeing a lot of activity uh, around patent filing. So there's two avenues that we, you know, that need to be explored. Both, both look increasingly compelling. I, I think this conversation, and, and we've talked about doing a whole episode on this, because I think it's a really interesting analysis on the, the term you used, which is competitive and differentiated IP. I think the, that gets glossed over <laughs> Uh, or sometimes taken for granted, and it's a really hard, a really hard problem. Um, and part of this too, which it touches on the last thing that you talked about, and, and I'm really curious about, is um, you know what steps the government continues to take to either pass legislation or or perhaps go the reverse and uh, make vulnerable IP protection rights. Um, it seems like sometimes there's bills getting floated that actually threaten 
IP businesses or, uh, or, or, or exploit vulnerabilities. Um, and so how, how I guess the, the regulating bodies can play a role in continuing to help protect IP is an important part of, um, important part of that step going forward. Cause again, if it's, if lawsuits can just happen like crazy, you imagine that IP companies like to sue each other, but the, the regulation part of that's an interesting one that, uh, that I keep an eye on too. Well, there was, there was a big reform of what, five, six years ago. That sort of, I, I can't remember how long it was a few years ago, did away with some of the worst abuses, right? The, the Oklahoma men's room example being one of them, right? We, from a bathroom, where, a, a you know, the bathroom stall. <laughs> that's right. But IP here. Oh, Call this <laughs> that's how that played out. Anyway, <laughs> but um, more, more, more seriously, there is, uh, the, yeah, the, the sort of the real like professional patent, the institutionalized patent trolls, that was an interesting model in the right. teens and is no longer viable because of some pretty, seems like pretty reasonable changes to the yeah. patent regime. I don't know about any new policies in the works in the U.S., um, but I do know there was some interesting, there's been some interesting developments in China. And I, I wrote about this in my newsletter last week. The, the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago did an article basically accusing China's patent system of being uh, rigged against foreigners. And there, there's, some, there's, some, there's something there. But I actually linked to it. There's a, a UC Berkeley professor, Mark Cohen, who has worked in the U.S. Trade Representative's office. He's worked in the U.S. Embassy in China, um, super knowledgeable guy, and he he has all the data, or you know whatever's now available from China, and he's looked at you know years and years and years of of IP cases in in China, like that's his specialty, and it it is mm. interesting. Like, yes, there is some there is some bias against foreigners, but it's not black and white. It's not a hundred percent. There are lots of cases in which foreigners can win. And he goes into all the nuances and all the categories. Sometimes it's easier than others. Uh, there are absolutely some abuses. Uh, Huawei seems to have a, a bunch of very friendly venues in Guangzhou, its home province. And, you know, um, there there are examples like that. But broadly, it's it's it seems much fairer than you would think. Um, and it, I, I think you know when I I lived in China in the nineties. And I worked for a company that cared a lot about its patents and its trademarks. And it was always a problem because people were counterfeiting our stuff left and right. Or you could just go down to the silk market and you could buy, you know, yeah. any piece of software you wanted for a buck. Right. And at the time, there was two, two, two approaches that people used to think about it. They said, oh, we can either, we can either, you know, we're going to, we're going to go down to the factory and shut down the factory that's producing the, the fakes. And that, that was impossible. The other approach, and I think Microsoft did a lot on this. A few U.S. companies helped yeah, a lot too. with this. Was to yeah. say, look, let's just yeah. let's just make let's make IP important in China to to Chinese companies, so we don't have to lobby the Chinese government to take care of IP. They'll they'll just want to do it to protect their own constituents, and and that's pretty much what's happened. Where we've seen you know massive increase in patent filings from all the from lots and lots of Chinese companies. Right. I think Huawei is one of the biggest patent filers in the world now, right? And they've, you know, they have now. They have, there are people in China who care about protecting IP, which didn't, you know, didn't really exist 
10, 15 years or 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's, that's progress. That's better than it was. I think it's, I think it's probably, it's, it's not perfect, but it's much better than people think it is. What's the, is there a common uh, business model around the licensing of IP or IP transfer that happens in China? Is it, is it similar to here or completely different? It's, it's, I mean, to, you know, I I don't have a a law degree, so to my eyes, it looks pretty similar. Um, It's, it's a lot of big corporates filing IP, Mm. right? And we, and we've actually, we've seen this, like, uh, you know, there's these two handset companies, Vivo and Oppo. Yeah. Right. They're actually, they're actually owned by the same company. They're all owned by BBK, but they're allowed to operate fairly independently. Right. Right. And they actually have very different approaches to IP and I'm, I'm going to mess this up, but I think Vivo is the one that has been very, very active in all things IP. They file a lot of their own patents. They've gone out and signed all kinds of license deals around the world. They're very engaged in the patent process. Oppo has taken a different approach. Um, too soon to tell how that's going to play out for each of them. Um, they're both getting sued by different people around the world. Uh, but you know, it's, it, I remember a long time ago, I, I talked to uh, talked to a guy who worked at Huawei, and he uh, and he, he they were they were suing somebody at the time I forget who, and he said why why are you guys criticizing us for IP, like we're we're just doing what you've shown us to do, right? right? It was very much don't don't hate the player, hate hate the game. You just the you, this the is game. the game. We're just you don't get mad that we're playing it better than you are. Right. And, and so that, that's a little little glib, but I, I you know, it, it's I, I, th- I think patent licensing in China would, would look fairly similar until you get to the, you know, the legal and contractual level. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot of yeah. similarities. Well, I think it I think it'll be it would be encouraging, honestly, if um, if if we did see a little bit of rejuvenation of some IP business models, I mean, there's a lot of companies that have an absurd amount of patents and you know you could argue that they're not always getting as much value from them because you know business models are are challenging just around the ip side but i think it'd be interesting to to reinvigorate some elements of that uh at least as a business model that's not shunned or or or, or looked down upon if you will right just the opportunity to really commercialize ip yeah, but that's the first kind of the first bucket of IP I was really thinking of was not just patents, but actual I you know products that are based on IP, like ARM does, like Steva does, right? Mm. That they're they're providing a product. It's not you know it's not software as a service. It's not hardware. It's it's right. sort of like right. know how how to, how to do this. Uh, and right. I I think we're in a good setup for that. Like I, I know a company here called Expedera that has this little neural processing unit. IP, like really, really, really scalable AI architecture, you know, and they have real customers, right? It's real, it's a real business. Right. And, and right. I, I think there's a lot of scope for that as we're trying to build differentiated SOCs that sort of lends itself well to, you know, if, if especially if you're not a chip company, if you're Google or right. Amazon, right. you don't want to necessarily reinvent the wheel. If there's somebody else out there who has a good piece that you need, just license right. it, right? And and I you know I, I think we don't realize it, but that that's been taking place for years. Like mostly, it's been sort of hidden under uh, EDA tools because that's that's where most of these companies get get their IP from. Right. 
Cadence, Synopsys, Mentor, all license all kinds of different kinds of IP. Um, for you, you know, you don't have to do all the interfaces yourself. It's you know, you just sort of copy and paste, pay them their license. We we think of EDA companies as sort of CAD tools, but a lot of their business is from IP. It all and it has been for years. We just sort of it's it gets lost in the it's explaining what EDA does is, is too hard for most people, including myself. So we yes, we don't always not. look at that IP side of it. Yes. A, 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 a bit deep in the weeds, uh, probably even for our audience, even though we're maybe talking to more technical people. Um, all right. Interesting, as always. Uh, until, uh, until next time, thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everybody.